Hello everyone and welcome to episode 5 of season 3 of Ignite the Flame Audio. So glad to have you here, whether you're joining us for the first time or whether you've been here for the last two seasons. Welcome to all of you. If you are here for the first time, I would encourage you to go back to the start of season 3. The good thing about season 3 is that it's not chronologically linked to the previous books, so you don't have to necessarily have listened to season 1 and season 2 to be able to get straight into the story that's being read to you in this season because it's a separate novel, it's a standalone novel that's being read to you. Those of you who have been coming to Ignite the Flame Audio now for a while, of course you'll know how an episode is broken down. But for those of you who are new, basically what we do is we read a chapter to you from the book, in this case, this season being Abattoir Black. Then we go into a section known as the Origin of Ideas, which is where we break the chapter down the ideas behind the formation of the chapter, basically giving you almost a director's cut, behind-the-scenes look in the formation of that chapter. Then we go into a section known as Tips of the Trade, where we discuss, as it says, Tips of the Trade for those of you who are aspiring to be authors, or those of you who are authors just looking for that little bit extra. If you like what you hear from this season, I would encourage you to go back and listen to Season 1 and then Season 2. Those seasons are chronologically linked, so it makes sense that you listen to Season 1 first and then Season 2 because those two books follow on from each other. As always, you're always welcome, and I hope that you have a great time and you get something out of this season. Of course, with this season comes a disclaimer. Now, throughout the best part of this season, we've been setting an age range of about 12 years. So anyone who is younger than that age range, I would encourage you that this season is not for you, because this season, this particular book, contains graphic depictions that I don't believe are age-appropriate for anyone below the age of 12. During the course of these episodes, I've encouraged those of you who are 12 and above, if you are in the vicinity or if you're nearby to someone who is lower than that age range, I would encourage you to get them out of earshot, ask them to leave the room, pop your headphones in, do the responsible thing and just protect them. Because obviously we don't want people getting scared, we don't want people having nightmares, we don't want people feeling ill. That's not our intention. We don't want to expose them to content that is not age appropriate. So let's be responsible and let's do the right thing and make sure that they're not exposed to the content that isn't appropriate for their age. With that being said, these next three episodes, and I will continue to mention it every episode, these next three episodes, the graphic content is somewhat increased. Now, the difficult thing is there's no age restrictions on books. I don't know why there's no system in place, but there isn't. So... I am basing these age ratings off my own personal decision, my own personal experiences, what I was being subject to in school at that age. So I would advise you, even if you are around that age, 12, 13, 14, if at any point you feel that the content that you are exposed to during the next three episodes is too much, it makes you feel ill or it makes you scared, stop listening immediately and don't return until you are of an age where you feel that you can handle the content. Let's be smart. Let's be clever. If you feel at any point that the content of these next three episodes is too much for you to handle, stop listening immediately and walk away. Because I wouldn't want you to feel ill. I wouldn't want you to have nightmares or be negatively affected by the content of this work because you are not ready for it. So I'm asking you, to do the responsible thing, know your limits, and if it's too much for you, stop listening and walk away until you are of an age 
where you can handle the content that's being read to you. If you're unsure, listen to it in the presence of someone who is older, preferably around the age of 18, a parent, perhaps, or a carer. And if they think that it's appropriate for you to be listening to, then go off their decision. If they do not believe that it's appropriate for you, then don't. As I say, our intention is to keep you as the listener completely safe and to keep everyone around you safe as well. We don't want anyone to be made to feel ill or scared or have nightmares as a result because you're not ready for the content because it's it's inappropriate for your age. So I'm pleading with you, do the responsible thing, know your limitations, take care of yourself and those around you and make sure that we keep everyone safe and you especially. So if at any point, I'll say it again, if at any point during the course of these three episodes you feel ill or scared or if it's just too much, the graphic content is just too much for you, stop listening immediately and walk away because I care about you. I don't want you to be negatively impacted by the content of this work. And obviously, I care about all the people around you as well. So please, just do the right thing. Know your limitations. I know I'm going on about it, but know your limitations. Be safe. And if it's too much, just stop. Okay, guys, hopefully that's got the point across. And hopefully you can tell how genuine I'm coming across. Okay, with that being said, let's go ahead and get into it. I'm Wayne Telford, and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Ignite the Flame Audio, where our hope is to bring people together one word at a time. Follow me, Wayne Telford, into the depths of your imagination. Abattoir Black, Chapter 5, Abattoir Standing in awe and shock, they grab onto one another, holding their loved ones close, resisting letting them go, lest they be consumed by this craven, bloodthirsty lunatic. This is no longer about a case, said Chaplin. It's about survival, officer. How many rounds do you have in your weapon? Raymond inquires. Five, officer. Chaplin reveals. I have five also. Well, I suggest we save them for when the time comes, and then make each one count. Agreed? Raymond asked. Agreed, said Chaplin. Officer Raymond, now realising the seriousness of their predicament, shakes Officer Chaplin's hand, cancelling all past hatreds. Alas, it was already too late, as they had not even realised. Nightfall had begun, and this would bring a whole new wave of terror, one that even they were not prepared for. A whistle emanated from inside the structure, behind the barn. The shattering of metallic doors is accompanied by the thundering of hooves and animal noises, beginning to roar through the landscape. But as for their appearance, they were hidden from sight almost perfectly, leaving only vague outlines to betray their presence. Blood-curdling squeals and grunts begin to fill the air, as all types of animals start to pour into the paddocks, laying waste to fences and taking refuge where they saw fit. The group gathered, and with each officer at bipolar positions, all they could do was to pray for a swift demise at the hands of this killer. The animals are free, which means that the abattoir will be the safest place to hide. The killer will use the noise of the animals to mask his movements, Raymond stated. Agreed. So, you check the abattoir and take the Morrisons with you, while I remain here with the Thamesbury's, Chaplin suggested. Very well, but shout if anything happens, all right? Raymond instructed. Understood, officer. And good luck, Chaplin confirmed. Likewise, Officer Raymond took off in the direction of the slaughterhouse, with the Morrison family in tow. 
leaving Officer Chaplin and the Thamesbury's to fend off that which they could not see under the shelter of the barn. To say that either group was safe would be foolish, for they had yet to realize how this killer operated. But for now, they were armed, to keep all at bay, at least until their ammunition was exhausted. Upon entering the abattoir, the smell of blood and death filled the room, enough to cause Mildred to heave and vomit across the floor. Setting off, Eustace said, Pull yourselves together. Now, I will head this way, and you two go that way. Here, take the gun, Raymond commanded. What about you? Mildred asked. Just take the gun, said Officer Raymond, surrendering his life for them. They accepted the weapon, few of them knowing how to use it, but thankful with the knowledge of possessing it. Raymond proceeded northwards toward the hanging rooms, whilst the Morrisons headed for the pens where the animals were kept, awaiting their gruesome fate. One room for birth, life, and death. How could we do this? And think it's natural? Mildred asked Eustace, to which he could only reply, as long as we respect them in life, death will be more acceptable for them, with greater respect for every part of life, one life for another, I think. Eustace suggested, I understand that it is necessary, but don't you ever wish things could be different? Mildred questioned, Well, my dearest, sacrifice is part of life, and if we accept it, then eventually we will feed others. As our bodies are laid down into the ground, as the circle of life, Eustace continued, That's just an excuse for slaughtering a species to the brink of extinction, Mildred contested. As long as it feeds us, the world will survive. It's for a tainted purpose, I know, and humanity has a lot to answer for, she said, as they pass into the dark corners of the pens, with very little sound or vision to show them where they are headed next. Officer Raymond returned to the scene, where he had seen the face, with little light left, except for a slice of moonlight, depicting a starry sky overlooking a somewhat surreal setting, lighting a match to reveal detail. A set of footprints were revealed, but with part of the footprint missing, not even showing the killer's shoe size. Suddenly, there was a scream, followed by a cry and a bone-shattering clunk, and then complete silence. No! Let her go! Oh my god! Officer Ray! A blow was heard. Raymond reached for his weapon, only to realize his earlier mistake, allowing the match to burn itself out. Officer Raymond drew nearer to the pens with a quickened pace. As he grew closer to the pens' entrance, he looked up at the vacant meat hooks, all hanging just meters above each individual's pen, except that then, a large shadowy pair now became visible in the dying light as Officer Raymond struck another match to see. A shovel whacked the back of his skull, reopening a former wound. His body was dragged and placed into a container filled with water, soiled with blood and rust. Planning for him to drown in unconsciousness as the killer laid waste to the others, it was like a game, leaving the sport for last, with only Officer Raymond and Officer Chaplin as the contenders for survival. The doors opened and released the floodgates with Officer Raymond struggling to breathe and spewing blood everywhere. Water pouring from every orifice. Officer Raymond, are you all right? Wake up! Shouted Officer Chaplin, as he slaps Officer Raymond back into existence, forcing the fluid from his lungs with each strike to his back. Officer Raymond coughs and heaves. He reaches for his head only to realize what hung just meters above him, the blood dripping on his hands and trickling to the floor below, mingling with his own. Officer Chaplin, what is that? I, I can't see. 
said Raymond, as he succumbed to his injuries. His vision was now noticeably impaired, and it was not just the effect of the darkness. The Morrisons? I'm sorry, Raymond, Chaplin revealed. Oh my God. Why not take me? What game is he playing? Raymond asked. Not one that I am familiar with. I have never seen this kind of killer before. One that delights in the thrill of the hunt. Almost as if he were. Chaplin begins. An animal. Raymond realizes. That's not what I said. Chaplin defends himself. It doesn't matter. We need to catch this monster before he kills again. I've lost too many to this case already. Raymond said. As he struggles to his feet. Here is your weapon. I found it just under Eustace's body. I guess he was holding it when... Chaplin mourns. And Mildred? Raymond expounded. Right beside him. Only a few feet from where you are now. Chaplin cried. I was responsible. I was supposed to protect them. And I failed. Raymond blamed himself also. Now deal with it. I failed as well. Chaplin confronted him. What are you talking about? Raymond replied. As soon as you left, I told the Thamesbury's to hide in the barn until I returned. I heard a scream and came to help. Good thing I did, as you were nearly drowned. And had I not arrived when I did? Chaplin queried. You told them to hide in the barn? They might still be alive. Go to them. Leave me, Raymond ordered. All right, fine. I'm going. I'm going. Officer Chaplin began to run towards the barn. Upon him leaving, a mechanism triggered, and a rotary device began to sound an unearthly whistle, with the grinding of metal as its source. The sound then changed and turned into a more natural echo, with the animals now being summoned to their birthplace. Officer Raymond attempted to rally himself and grabbed hold of a meat hook, which had been left vacant. He pulled himself upright and ascended, showing immense upper body strength, displaying the strength in his biceps and neck area, resting his foot in the curve. He stood atop the main paddock, as animals began to flow towards their appointed areas, each expecting something. But what followed was horrific beyond description. Raymond could only bear witness, as the hooks lowered into the pens, and the animals begin to smell the corpses laid out for them. The pigs begin to nuzzle at Eustace's twitching body, and began to tear and rip flesh from his cadaver. His legs were torn from his spinal column, spilling blood across the rest of the pack, with each licking another's face, lapping up the entrails as if to affectionately communicate with one another. The boar directed their movements, coordinating the pecking order, while saving the head for himself. As he crushed Eustace's skull between his tusks and licked the brain from its internal cavity, the eyes were sucked out and hair devoured, much to the sickening of Officer Raymond. He could only stand and watch, trying desperately not to meet a similar fate. Eustace's body was then completely torn from the hook. The rest gathered round and began to feed, as they had done once as piglets. But this lust was not for milk, but blood. Their stained maws opened and shut with grunts of satisfaction, as all was consumed, including bone and even clothing. Officer Raymond turned away, heaving and retching, trying to contemplate what was happening. What drove these creatures to such an act of desperation? Had we driven them to this? As Raymond turned, he was mortified further as a separate pen was revealed, filled with cattle. A faint murmur came from Mildred as she was still alive. The hook was only piercing her collarbone, tugging at her neck, but not allowing her the mercy of a quick death. This revealed the sadistic nature of the killer, 
or perhaps it was no longer a single killer. But surely this was inconceivable, was it not? Raymond could only reach out and hope that Mildred was seeing him, but alas, all she awaited was the bull, as he lined up toward her, gaining speed. Raymond closed his eyes as Mildred was gored and torn apart. The beast ripped her upper torso in two. A twitch from her arm was the last movement she could manage. Raymond could only hold his head beneath his arm, listening to her being devoured as they feasted upon what was left, gnawing upon her body and entrails as feed, mashing it into a pulp and chewing over it, as they would in nature, the calves suckling at their mother's teats, only drawing blood into their awaiting mouths, feeding more corruption into their young bodies. A truly gruesome sight, but one which mankind had created. Once the body was consumed, the surrounding animals flocked to the sides, licking the faces of their neighbours to try and satisfy a bloodlust which could not be quenched. They triumphantly finished the feast, as if pleading for further killing, all in an unearthly chorus. The chanting and harmonics were reminiscent of pagan rituals. The whistle sounded again, and the paddocks reopened, as they left once more to survey their hunting grounds. Once the last swine had left, Officer Raymond dropped to the ground, which was then completely cleared of every human trace. All had been consumed into non-existence by these wretched creatures. Feeling the ground where they had once laid, he could feel the warmth of a soul now lost, and he began to weep, containing his sorrow at the lost hopes of bringing them back. Little did he know that he was under close watch. However, this animal did not wish him dead then, only to observe. He rose and tried to return to the barn, only to be spotted by a dog with a blood-stained face and with a chain embedded into its collar. A collie, by breed, with all its white fur now red and matted, and its eyes, which had once reflected purity, now crazed and thirsting for what coursed through his veins. Realising that Officer Chaplin had taken his gun, Raymond reached for the next closest thing, a shovel left propped up against the abattoir wall. It was possibly the same shovel which had been used to strike him earlier. That didn't matter now. It was all about survival, and Officer Raymond was determined that in a fight between man and man's best friend, man would triumph. How little he knew. The collie howled in a primal state and brought a herd of sheep to its side, each one with a similar-looking fleece to that of the hound. Raymond looked at his weapon and realised how ineffective it was. He decides that his best and only course of action was to run and never look back. He was hoping that he would have enough strength left in him to make it to the barn just moments away. As Officer Raymond began to run, the collie and the herd pursued him with a pack mentality, tracking his every move to predict his next action. They were trying to cut him off from his security, but as he drew near to the barn, he realised that something was wrong. The gates which had remained open all this time, since he had first arrived, were now bolted shut. Turning to face his pursuers, Raymond raised the shovel and faced the door, prepared to accept whatever came next. Despite the prospect of the fate he had witnessed, they surrounded him and bleated in praise of their efforts, trapping him against the only shelter he had left. Officer Raymond turned and faced them, opening his eyes, preparing for his final stand against the horde of sheep, led by a collective intelligence. Suddenly a whistle sounded, and they ceased moving, as if a trance caused by the sound. Raymond was pulled to safety by an unknown hand. Officer? Jim asked, realising that his intentions had not been misplaced. When did you bolt the barn? Raymond asked, as if to ponder his near-death experience. 
I told them to secure the door. Here is your gun, officer, says Officer Chaplin, as he hands the revolver over and unsheaths his own as a precaution, unaware of Raymond's intentions. Who made you leader of us? said Raymond. We all decided to barricade, as the officer told us that there was little hope for your return. Jim confessed. You told them what? Raymond snapped. I instructed them to barricade the barn until I returned. I thought that you were dead, Chaplin argued. Well, I was not dead. And next time, if I find you make that decision again, I would like to be present. Is that clear? Raymond declared. I thought you were dead, Officer Chaplin proclaimed, to justify his course of action. But before Raymond could respond, the door shuddered, bending beneath the weight of the herd, which had amassed just on the other side, battering each plank, drawing blood as their heads rebound off the external nails, impaling their flesh and fur upon contact. How much weight would you say that door can take? Jim asked. Not much. And the herd is at least fifteen individuals. Wait. Where's the dog? Raymond asked. What dog? Anyone hear that? As the sounds came from the sheep, clawing and digging began to pierce the silence. From the rear door, as the collie attempted to breach the door. Officer, barricade the front doors and I will stand watch over the door here, Raymond ordered, with gun loaded and primed for the appearance of a blood-stained canine. As the earth is dug from beneath the door, the click of the gun causes an immediate effect. The sheep grow restless and align against the door, all pushing in unison. The timber began to buckle and splinter, as Jim and Moira Timsbury rush against it to brace for the next wave. Wait, they, they've stopped, Moira said. They're planning a way to get in, Raymond stated. Can they do that? They're animals, Jim stated. The, the only way we are going to survive this is, is if one of us... Draw them away, Moira Temsbury suggested. I'll do it, Raymond replied. I ran them once, and it's best that you all survive, he said. No, if we all run for the woods, then we can at least break in different directions so one of us can survive, Chaplin suggested. We, we, we all need to survive this. No one moves, Jim stated. If we hold out as long as possible, it will deter them, Raymond remarks. Anyone notice how quiet it is? Officer Chaplin asked. The night has grown silent of calls and rustles. The grass is standing still in the fields, with not the slightest hint of wind passing between it. I'll go and take a look, said Jim. As he ascends a wooden ladder toward the hatch, darkness grows enough to hide the opening to the floor below. He inched further forward. The slightest glimmer of red appeared from the flock as they moved from right to left, almost asleep, swaying back and forth as the moon passed over them. A final glance, and then Jim suddenly lost his footing, falling onto the post which held the barn's pulley systems. He landed on his sternum and cracked some ribs. The herd sparked back to life and congregated around his broken body, hanging from no more than a two-foot-thick support beam. Their heads reached towards his feet, just shy of his toes and attempted to nibble them, fighting amongst one another for the best pickings. Meanwhile, Officer Raymond is already at the place where Jim had stumbled, and attempted to drive them away using his gun. One shot claimed the first. The bullet passed directly through the skull of a ewe, and the second through the eye of a ram. Their blood, thick and coarse, lighter elements mingled within it. At first the herd breaks in disarray, but soon regroups. They dragged away their dead as if to mourn them. 
Jim was lulled into a false sense of security before the collie climbed up a stack of boxes. From beside the barn it leapt towards him, grabbing his arm and wrenching. Each twist severed the limb further from his cadaver. The shoulder dislocated. Jim released a scream of agony which ripped through the sound barrier, causing discomfort in all who were witnesses. The collie continued to pull and rip into Jim's arm, hanging on little more than a few layers of skin and tissue. The pain alone sends him into a daze, and Officer Raymond seized the opportunity, lowering himself to the pillar and attempting to revive his fallen comrade. As Officer Raymond placed his foot upon the wooden beam, it began to creak and bend under his weight, the beam barely supporting Jim. As Raymond inched toward Jim and grabbed his belt, the beam gave way and time began to slow, as Jim's unconscious body fell to the mercy of the bleating horde. The sound of feeding began as they tore Jim to pieces, consuming all that could be recognised, leaving Raymond only to wonder why he had not been chosen. Their ignorance puzzling him, he began to shout at them, unmindful of the risk. He shouted, Don't you not wish to consume me? Why him? Come for me! Raymond crossed the fine line of sanity, becoming entrapped by this perverse reality. He walked away from the herd, hearing the sound of bones cracking and innards spilling as he stepped away at a leisurely pace, trying to comprehend the animal's selection rather than using it to his advantage, calling out, Jim? R Raymond? Oh my God, they're gone! Moira foolishly opened the door. Officer Chaplin was already clambering up the ladder by then, and she allowed entry for the horde of wool and flesh. They knocked her to the floor, tearing at her hair as they attempted to grip and pull her helpless body towards the abattoir. As she kicked and screamed, the crows called as if to direct intentions toward her. They were pecking at her exposed arms and legs, drawing blood with every incision. The bull kicked at her skull, rendering her useless as the sheep slowly began to drag her away under his watchful eye. He was calling orders to each of them in turn. As they tried to drag her body, it left marks behind, revealing a distinct lack of struggle. With her hair beginning to be ripped from her head, Officer Chaplin, frozen in fear, could do nothing but look on. As they took her to the abattoir in preparation for the feast, he would never forget. After a moment's silence and shock, Officer Chaplin jumped down and ran towards the woods, never looking back, in case he became the next victim. A hand threw him to the ground as he passed the shack just outside the silo. Raymond asked, Where do you think you're going? I have to get out of here. They took Moira. Chaplin screamed. I know, and we're going to get them back. Raymond said, We? Them? Chaplin moaned. Yes, them. Moira, Clive, Daphne, and Billy have all been taken to the abattoir. Raymond revealed. Oh, my goodness. Why? Chaplin asked. We're going to find out. Just you and me. With a crazed look in his eye, Raymond placed Officer Chaplin's gun back into his hands and revealed his distinct lack of ammunition, whereas Officer Raymond's gun remained untouched. Three rounds? Chaplin complained. That is for deserting. Now pick yourself up and let's go and end this. Raymond demanded. We are severely outnumbered, Chaplin whined. All we need to do is keep that whistle going and burn the abattoir to the ground, killing them all, Raymond commented. Sounds like a grand idea, Chaplin joked. It's agreed then. You will set fire to the abattoir, 
and I will go inside to get the Ottomans and Moira. Raymond replied, Agreed. As they parted ways, Officer Chaplin searched for a fuel source, thinking that his best chance would be within the barn, meaning running, yet again, for his life. All right, ready? Go! Officer Raymond hollered. They run in all directions, being pursued by all manner of animal life. Flocks of sheep and cattle were pursuing Officer Chaplin toward the barn, while crows, chickens, and horse were beginning to erupt from the fences to chase Raymond. Run, Raymond. Run, Chaplin said to himself, as though to coax further speed to outrun them. However, a horse gained distance on him and knocked him to the ground, trying to prevent him from reaching the abattoir. But upon realising where the two humans were going, the horse backed down and almost yielded. As the whistle sounded again, the killer watched the events as they unfolded. Once more, Raymond was confounded by the animal's reaction and attempted to make sense of it, but to no avail. This time, they broke off their pursuit of Officer Chaplin as well, and moved towards the abattoir. Arriving back at the festering house of putrefaction and slaughter, opportunity rose once more, and Officer Chaplin pulled a tank of kerosene from the store, which he had found above the many sacks of grain. With only a single match in his pocket, Officer Raymond made his way to Officer Chaplin, and asked the question which had plagued him since witnessing Eustace and Mildred's death. Why did they not take me? I wish I knew, Raymond, said Chaplin. As Raymond relieved Officer Chaplin of both the match and the tank, he began to pour the contents onto the floor, making sure of its flammability. The flames consumed the building almost instantaneously, giving them a spark of hope of ending the nightmare, an end long awaited as they stomped at the fire. So, how will you explain this to your chief inspector? Chaplin jokes. I have no idea. Who would believe me? Raymond replies, I'll vouch for you, if we make it out of this. Raymond agrees. If it comes to that, I'll grant us both an early exit. Raymond pulls his gun from its sheath and brings it to Chaplin's attention. They near the abattoir and hear all kinds of calls interlocking into one symphony of the damned, crying out to be fed the remainder of our party, to feast and go back into hiding, at least until the next course was offered to them. Chaplin and Officer Raymond stared at the last place of their existence. They stood alone, armed with eight rounds between them, against dozens of animals, all of different strengths and speeds. For what it's worth, officer, it's been an honour. Chaplin assures Raymond. Likewise, officer. Raymond concurs. As they part ways again, Officer Chaplin covered the abattoir with kerosene, and Officer Raymond pulled on the door, prying his way in. As the door is opened, he struggles to keep it to the left. The door's hinges had long since fallen off and rusted away. The darkness gave way to light from the lamps, which hung over each pen, illuminating the course as they sat, bound and gagged in the middle. The prisoners were surrounded by rows of animals, all seeking to devour their blood-ridden flesh. As Officer Raymond entered the sacrificial lair and attempted to remain hidden, a light flickered on, and a voice began to sound from over the radio system which ran throughout the abattoir. The voice, so harsh and yet familiar, barely needing an introduction, he revealed his identity. Officer Raymond, welcome to your final resting place. I hope you enjoy the show, courtesy of our earlier agreement. I told you that as soon as your back was turned, I would return the favor. Chaplain! My God, what have you done? Raymond yelled. 
It's nothing personal, you understand. It's simply an exchange. These souls, for mine, as it were. Chaplin stated, You are sick, and when I find you, I swear by my faith I will end you. Hear my words, I will kill you. Raymond threatened, Survive this, Raymond, and all will be revealed. Said Chaplin, See you on the other side. The gates were opened and animals were released. The screams from the four people combined and echoed through his being. The last he would ever hear was the unsettling noise of flesh being peeled from bone and organs being torn from their cadavers, with no hope in saving any of them. Now, officer, the only thing I ask, Chaplin said, is... Run. What? Raymond shouted. Just run. And welcome to the Origin of Ideas section of this podcast. Basically, this is the section of the podcast where we discuss the chapter that's just been read to you and break the ideas down that were involved in the formation of that chapter. So getting started off, we see the continuation of this theme that's present throughout Abattoir Black in the sense of farming. We have Mildred turn round and say to Eustace that she disagrees with the practice of farming in such a way that she disagrees that animals should be cooped up in one particular place their entire lives, like they only know one room throughout their entire lives. She sees it as an inhumane practice. She understands that it's necessary with the feeding of people and it's necessary that we should have farming practices in the first place. But she also contests the practice to the point where should we be consuming these animals to the point of extinction? Should we be treating them inhumanely simply because our ever-growing population demands for it to do so? And she touches on those points which we've raised along the theme of farming that I feel as an author need more discussion. There needs to be a balance found between humane treatment and the quality of life for the animal if we are to continue having a varied diet that involves meat as part of that diet. The second point is we're introduced to the age-old cliche of horror in the group splitting up. Now, this is seen between films and video games, and like I said, it's become a cliche in the sense that any logical person would think to themselves, if you're being hunted and you're part of a group, there's safety in numbers. It makes sense not to split up. It makes sense to stay together. But in a pressure situation, you're not always thinking logically. Emotion starts to take over. Fear starts to take over your thought processes and you don't think logically. A lot of the time, you'll make decisions because you're trying to increase the rate of survival. But a lot of the time, your own survival instincts will kick in to ensure your own survival as opposed to the survival of others. And we see that here in the sense that Officer Raymond gives Eustace and Mildred his weapon and tells them to go off to the paddocks while he goes off alone. And he tells Officer Chaplin to stay with Jim and Moira Temsbury in the barn. And that sort of adds to the whole cliche of you have one character who wants to be the hero and sort of give his life or her life to save the remainder of the group. And then you have other characters which are sort of put in a survival situation, but they don't really know how to defend themselves. And then you have another group that are just happy to sort of stand there and just let it all blow over. And all three of these different groupings are expressed within this chapter. The third point is we're introduced to the concept behind Abattoir Black as a whole. Now, throughout the book, 
what we've tried to do is have a story that has a role reversal element to it. So what would life be like if the shoe was on the other foot? What would it be like if animals ruled the planet and we were the ones, humans were the ones being farmed? That's the whole psychology behind Abattoir Black. It's very much a sociological experiment, if you will. And what we try to do is we try to ask those questions and then answer them within this fictional story. Obviously, we've seen other takes on this. We've got James Patterson's Zoo, for example, on animals gaining an intelligence enough that they rise up against their human captives, so to speak. But that's more on a global scale. This is more of an isolated incident. This is more of asking the question, what if the roles were reversed? And there's been stories that have shown that farms that have been abandoned, particularly including animals that are omnivorous, like dogs or pigs, they've got to the point where they haven't been fed and they can't go out and feed for themselves. So the stories are that the farmer has killed over and fallen into the pen and not to disgust any of you listening, but the animals have actually consumed them because they have nothing else to eat. Because of their omnivorous nature, because they eat both meat and plants, they're not going to turn their nose up. Other cases have been that animals are lacking in things. So, for instance, horses will actually kill birds. They'll walk over the top of them and and crush them, and then they'll eat at them because they need something from that particular organism. There's something in the bones that that particular animal needs. So even though an animal is classed as strictly vegetarian, there are still these primal instincts that should the body of that particular animal crave a certain mineral or a certain element that it needs, it will defy its natural behavior to ensure that it gets that. You hear stories of women who are pregnant and they get craving for charcoal. It's very strange. It's very odd. But there's something in the charcoal. There's minerals that obviously their body needs during that time. It's very strange. But what we have to remember is our bodies are made up of elements and minerals. It's just like a machine. And if it requires a certain element, if it requires a certain fuel, and it floods our brain with the message that we require that, we will go against our natural behavior to obtain it. And that's what we explore here through Abattoir Black, having these animals develop a bloodthirsty tendency toward the devouring of human flesh. The fourth point is something that we touched on before. We mentioned in a previous episode about continuity, and we see it here in this chapter, the example being the bullets within the revolvers shared between the two officers. So at the start of this chapter, we have Officer Chaplin and Officer Raymond both having five rounds in their particular guns. What happens is Officer Raymond then fires two rounds, one through the skull of a U one through the eye of a ram. So he's now down to three rounds. When Officer Chaplin then runs, after seeing Moira taken, he's pulled to the ground by Officer Raymond and given the gun with the three rounds as punishment for deserting or trying to desert. Because of that, we now have Officer Chaplin with a gun with three rounds and we now have Officer Raymond with the five rounds again. Between them, there are eight rounds. Now, this seems very nitpicky and a lot of people wouldn't notice this type of detail going through. But as we mentioned in a previous episode, those who do look for these minute details will appreciate your work a heck of a lot more because you've gone to the level of detail ensuring continuity within the story. So ammo is not going to magically appear and it's not going to magically disappear. How are you going to account for a missing bullet or a gained bullet? All these different things, yes, they seem picky, in the sense of the story, but if you want to create 
a believable fictional setting, it pays to pay attention to these small details. And we'll see that as we go through the remainder of these chapters toward the end of the book. We'll see as the ammunition starts to deplete, and we'll see how every bullet tells a story. The final point is we see the strengthening of the relationship between Officer Chaplin and Officer Raymond right before the ultimate betrayal. So the way to craft a betrayal between characters, you can either have it one of two ways. You can craft a betrayal by having the characters become really close to one another, and then once you have the big reveal, it sort of cuts deeper because it feels like, oh, that person was supposed to be an ally. I mean, think, for example, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. The woman that Indy spends the first part of the film with turns out to be a member of the Gestapo. If you think of Batman, The Dark Knight Rises, when he discovers that Miranda Tate is Talia and she betrays him toward the end of the film and realises that she is the architect behind Bruce Wayne's downfall and behind the destruction of Gotham or the plans for the destruction of Gotham, it hurts that much more because it's coming from someone who has spent the majority of the story aligning themselves with our main protagonist. The other way is to have them as an antagonist, but they remain close to the story. So these characters never truly get on, and you know that that character has a mysterious side, so that when it comes out, you sort of expect it to happen, but that betrayal is sort of more, as I said, of an expected turn. So, for instance, Jack Black's character of Carl Denham in King Kong, you know that he's always out for fame and fortune, even though he becomes like an allied character. He's very standoffish against the majority of the film crew and the cast of the film. And it's not so much of a surprise when he then suggests that they capture King Kong and take him back to New York, but it's still a betrayal. You still feel like this character was supposed to stand for good, but you sort of half expected it to happen in the same instance. And that's the other way that you can have a betrayal take place. For this story, we opted for the first option, because even though we've had this confrontation between Officer Chaplin and Officer Raymond, they've still had to group together as a means of survival. And it just makes that betrayal all the more personal between the two of them when it finally comes to its head. Okay, that about sums up for this section. Let's go ahead and get into the next one. And welcome to the tips of the trade section of this podcast. Basically, this is the section of the podcast where, as it says, we discuss tips of the trade. For those of you who are aspiring to be authors, or those of you who are already authors, just looking for that little bit extra. So today, we're going to start the first part of a two-part session, which will discuss the pros and cons of writing in first person, which we're going to discuss today, and third person writing, which we'll discuss in the next episode. So getting started off, there are pros and cons to writing in first person and third person as to be expected. With first person, one of the pros is the fact that you can give more of a personal feeling to the story. You're actually telling it from your own personal observations. So normally what occurs in a first person story is that either you as the author make yourself a character within the story, or you're telling the story from a neutral standpoint, but you're still within the story itself. The con to this is the fact that you're very limited in what you can discuss. So, for example, you don't have the same sort of omniscience, that ever-present sense of feeling that a third-person narrator would have. You wouldn't be able to tell the thoughts of other characters. You wouldn't be able to observe things outside of what you can see as a first-person 
narrator. So that sort of is a hindrance in itself. But on the plus side, you can create a more personal story. So you feel a much deeper connection with those characters that you're interacting with. You can also go into a higher level of detail within a particular character. If you're telling the story, for example, from the point of view of your protagonist, the main character, and you have decided to place yourself within the role of the main character, you can then dive into their thoughts. You can express your own feelings, your own emotions toward the story, toward other characters. You can sort of narrate almost a diary of that particular character's feelings and emotions, their actions. You can describe all these particular senses, all these particular reactions to a far more personal level than you can in a third-person narrator style, which otherwise doesn't tend to prioritise one character over another. They sort of tell a more unbiased, unfocused story. So all the characters have their own place within the story. First-person depicts one story character above the others and it tends to focus on that particular character. Writing from first person also allows you to embody the story. So what I mean by that is you feel like you're actually part of the story yourself. It connects the author, you as the author, to the story that you're writing. It creates a personal connection so that work feels more personal to you. Whereas in the case of third person, you would have more of this distance. It's sort of like you're telling the story but from far away. It's almost like you're telling the story around a campfire as opposed to actually telling the story from a diary. And that's a major pro in the sense that you can have a more personal connection with your own work. It means that that particular story is going to mean a lot more to you than perhaps a story that you've told in third person that you've almost sort of dissociated yourself from. But one of the cons of personally attaching yourself to your work is that if you wish to remain unbiased and you don't wish any particular character to have any more appointment than they're due, that can sort of hinder the rest of your characters. And it can also hinder the development of the story itself, because a lot of your own personal ideologies, your own personal thoughts, your own personal biases can actually find themselves creeping into the story, because that character may not react in the same way that you do, but you're reacting because you're telling the story from a first person point of view, and you're almost putting or forcing your reactions onto that character rather than giving them their own persona rather than giving them their own way in which they would deal with those situations which you would normally see within a third person setting okay as mentioned in the next part we'll be discussing the pros and cons of writing in third person so that about wraps it up for this section and that does it for episode five once again guys thank you for tuning in it means everything to us that you would take time out of your otherwise busy schedules just to make us a part of it. Of course, we'll endeavour to include all the links in the description below. So if there's any information that you require that have been mentioned during the course of this episode, you can find them in the links below. Right now, we're just going to take some time, as we have been doing over the course of this season and previous other seasons, just to promote a particular project known as Taylor's Trades, which is conducted by a personal friend of mine, Brandon Taylor. What this is, is it's a middleman service, sort of a courier service, that operates within England and the UK. And what it does is it allows you to buy, sell and trade goods safely. Now Brandon already has a thousand references, over a thousand references, most of which are positive reviews. And he's delivered over £400,000 worth of goods already to various places across the country. He operates from Southampton and as we've said he goes all across the UK delivering goods 
between parties, which avoids you having to pay for postage and packing, and it allows you to buy and sell and trade goods completely safely using his service, the courier middleman service that he provides. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, be sure to head to the descriptions and there you'll find links to his Facebook, Twitter and Instagram page. Be sure to drop him a line and I'm sure Brandon will be happy to hear from you. Okay guys, as always, thank you for tuning in. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, it means so much to us that you would choose this podcast over so many others that are out there. It makes our time worth the effort knowing that we have such a dedicated audience and i thank you to every one of you listening whatever you have planned for the day go out there and give it a hundred percent know that your best is always good enough keep improving always try to be better set your goals high and be the best you can possibly be i'm wayne telford and i'll see you next time